Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Today's episode is sponsored in part by 4Athletics. That's right, 4Athletics is back again. Ben and the guys at 4Athletics Apparel reached out to me and said they wanted to do more to help support our cause. And I'm more than happy to have them as a sponsor, not only because they're great guys to work with, but they also produce an amazing product. Remember, 4Athletics is a small company that was started by four brothers. They wanted to produce and sell high-quality athletic apparel at a price that people can actually afford. And they've been able to pull this off by using a crowdfunding model. When you go to their website, 4Athletics.com, You'll notice that every product has a track bar underneath it, and it says what percent funded that particular item is. See, they keep their prices so low by making sure that each item is fully funded before they manufacture and ship. Becky and I own and wear several of the products from 4Athletics, and every one of them is by far the most high-quality athletic apparel either of us have ever worn. In all of their athletic apparel, not only looks good and feels good, But the guys at 4Athletics put a lot of thought into how to make the products more functional. For example, a couple of weeks ago, Becky got a pair of their Omni shorts. And let me tell you, we both love them. I love them because I think they make her legs look sexy as hell. And she loves them because they have built-in underwear into the shorts. And all of you ladies out there know how important that is when you're wearing a shorter athletic short. I just can't say enough great things about this company. Besides being great quality products at an incredibly low price, all their products are made right here in the United States. And they ship internationally. So if you're looking for some great, high-quality athletic apparel, go to 4athletics.com, that's F-O-U-R, athletics.com, and use my promo code TRUTH to get 15% off of your entire order. That's right, go to 4athletics.com and use my promo code TRUTH for 15% off. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Truth and Justice. I'm your host, Bob Ruff. And before we get started today, I have a few housekeeping things that I want to let you all know about. First and foremost, I want to formally announce that starting on October 1st, Mike Bussing will officially be joining the staff here at Truth and Justice. For those of you that follow along on social media, you're probably already aware of who Mike is. Mike is a guy who has been an unpaid assistant, kind of an intern for me for the last year. Mike was one of my firemen at the fire department. He's also my co-host on my other show, the Off-Duty Podcast. And he typically spends several hours a week here just helping me out with whatever I need help with. Well, thanks to all of your support through donating to the Patreon page and buying t-shirts, I was finally able to offer Mike a full-time position in the studio. He's a great guy and has a real heart for what we're doing here. Part of Mike's duties as my assistant and executive producer of the show will be to assist me in producing a second episode a week. 
I mentioned this a few weeks back, and 99% of the feedback was great. The only negative feedback that I got was that listeners didn't want to listen to a bunch of people calling in and spending five minutes just praising me or the show. And I agree. In this second episode, it will be a listener feedback episode, but part of Mike's duties will be to screen those calls. So when people call in, they'll talk to Mike first. He'll narrow down which calls will be good for that episode, and then he'll transfer the call to me and we'll get right to the point. You'll also actually hear Mike's voice in these episodes because part of the episode will be me answering listener email questions, which Mike will be reading to me on the air. I think that this second episode is going to be great, and it's going to give me a chance to stay in contact with you all, the listeners. I'll be giving you more details as we get closer, but look for that second episode to start releasing on November 4th. And again, I want to thank all of you for all of your support. And now let's move on with the content of today's episode. In today's episode, I'm going to be breaking down the entire picture of what happened with Kenny Snow as he relates to Edward Eight's case. You've all heard most of the story, but you haven't heard all of it. I spent the last week cross-referencing everything from transcripts of phone conversations with Kenny to court filings and hearing transcripts. And I think that I finally have a very clear picture of what went on with him. And the results are even more shocking than you probably already thought you knew. I made mention last week that I think that not only are Kenny Snow's case and Edward Eight's case linked together, but I believe that Carrie Max Cook's case also played a role in what happened to Ed. As a quick review, remember that Carrie Max Cook was convicted and sentenced to death row in the late 70s. Years later, that conviction was overturned. He was tried again in 1992, but that trial ended in a mistrial. Now, it's important to note that Carrie Max Cook had been incarcerated this entire time, until 1994 when that case was retried again, and he was again convicted and sent back to death row. So even though his case had been up and down, with a conviction an exoneration, a mistrial, and then in 1994, a conviction again, Carey at that point had been locked up for 17 years. He was not granted bail after his first conviction was thrown out. But something very important happened in that 1994 trial. During the discovery phase of that trial, David Dobbs told Carey's attorney, Paul Nugent, that there were pages missing from the grand jury transcript where Robert Hone had testified before Carey's first trial. Dobbs swore that those pages did not exist. Then Dobbs went into the trial and drove home to the jury the importance of Robert Hone's testimony at the first trial. See, at the trial, Hone had testified that he and Carrie had been watching some kind of pornographic movie, they had a sexual encounter, and Carrie left all worked up and he must have went to Linda Joe Edwards' apartment. But what he had said before the grand jury was that Carrie was actually not paying any attention whatsoever to the movie that was on TV. And he had also testified that he had dropped Carrie back off to the apartment at a time that would have made it impossible for Carrie to have committed the murder. But Carrie's attorneys didn't know that because Dobbs had told him that those transcripts didn't exist. But while the jury was deliberating, Nugent saw David Dobbs reading the original copy of the grand jury transcript that did indeed contain the pages where Robert Hone had given a completely different testimony. But it was too late at that point. The trial was already over, the jury was already deliberating, and they again came back with a guilty verdict 
and sentenced Carrie Max Cook back to death row. This was a highly publicized case, and David Dobbs was being held up by the local media as being the hero who sent Carrie Max Cook, the murderer, back to death row. But two years later, that all changed. In 1996, which is when Ed's first trial occurred, the Texas Criminal Court of Appeals threw out Carrie Max Cook's conviction. Now, I know that I told you all about this last week, but just as a reminder, the CCA's opinion stated that the levels of prosecutorial and police misconduct in Carrie Max Cook's case were so bad and so egregious that they didn't believe that Carrie Max Cook could ever get a fair trial. So at this point, remember, we're in 1996. Dobbs has been embarrassed by having this conviction thrown out. But at least at this point, Carrie Cook was still being held in jail. And Dobbs was vowing to try him and get him convicted again. And now as we continue to track the timeline, in January of 1997, Kenny Snow is arrested for the simple robbery that occurred in Smith County and the aggravated robbery that occurred in the city of Tyler. At this point, I think these two cases are unrelated. And as a brief aside, a lot of you have been asking me if we've given up or forgotten about Kenny Snow. And I want to assure you all that that is absolutely not the case. Like I mentioned a few weeks back, I can't really talk to Kenny right now because of this overlap with his case and Ed's case. But his attorney is working on his case, and I am in contact with his attorney. I'm not really talking about his case on the show for legal reasons right now, but I want to assure you all that Kenny Snow has not been forgotten about. As a matter of fact, I've been in contact with our merch store, and they're working right now to develop a t-shirt for Kenny. So keep him in your thoughts or your prayers, and know that we're still actively working on Kenny's case. But for now, back to our timeline. So, 1996, Kerry Cook conviction is thrown out. January 1997, Kenny Snow was arrested. And then later in 1997, Kerry Max Cook, for the first time in 18 years, was granted bail. In Kerry's book, Chasing Justice, he describes the moment that he walked out of the courthouse. He says in his book that David Dobbs was standing across the street, angrily watching him walk down the court steps, a free man for the first time in 18 years, all at his hand. This was about the same time that Ed's bond was violated and he was brought back into the Smith County Jail, where Kenny Snow was already residing. Now keep in mind there's another anomaly to this case. Remember way back from a few months ago, that the woman plump, Patricia Mims, who was also convicted in the same case as Kenny Snow, was convicted and sentenced by the fall of 1997. Yet Kenny Snow, who had in fact confessed to one of these robberies and was willing to take a plea, was still sitting in the Smith County Jail, not only then, but for over a year after Patricia Mims was sentenced. So we have to ask ourselves, why was Kenny Snow left sitting in that jail? Well, I think that I know why. In April of that year, a man named Donald Whittington was robbed and murdered, execution style. According to the official record, a guy by the name of Justin Fuller, along with three accomplices, broke into Whittington's house, robbed him, and then Fuller and two of the accomplices put Whittington into his own car, drove him to an ATM machine, and forced him to take out $240. They then took him to a park, had him get down on his knees, and shot him two times in the head and once in the arm with a .22 caliber pistol. Justin Fuller was 18 years old at the time of this offense. 
And supposedly he had taken a few high school students out to see the body in the park. One of those students called the police. The police then went to Fuller's house and found the victim's ATM card in his wallet and the victim's watch in his living room. Fuller confessed to being a part of the robbery and the murder, but denied being the actual trigger man. And this is how this all relates to Ed's case. In August of 1997, Kenny Snow, Edward Ates, and Justin Fuller were all sitting in the Smith County Jail, along with Francis Johnson. Kenny tells me, and his statements in the official record say, that while in jail, Justin Fuller tried to get Kenny to lie for him. But Kenny didn't do it. Instead, he sent a letter to District Attorney Matt Bingham, telling him that he had information on Fuller's case and that Fuller had tried to get him to lie. Now, Bingham didn't take the bait. He was the one prosecuting Fuller's case, and he never even contacted Kenny Snow. I would assume it was because, with Kenny Snow being a jailhouse snitch, those aren't always the most reliable, and they had a pretty open-and-shut case against Fuller already. But there was something in that letter that got someone's attention. Now, this part of the story is a little different than the story we've heard from Kenny up to this point. The version that Kenny originally told me made him seem a little more innocent in how he became to be a jailhouse snitch in the Edward Eights case. And I guess I can't blame him for that. In one of the letters that Kenny wrote about the Fuller case, Kenny tells the prosecutor that he hopes that he could be one of the best criminal informants that Smith County has ever seen. And about two weeks after he wrote the initial letter about the Fuller case, David Dobbs and Dennis Murphy came to visit Kenny Snow in prison, according to this 2005 conversation. Kenny says that the two of them came down, and Dennis Murphy was actually working the Justin Fuller case, but David Dobbs was not the one prosecuting it. He said that they briefly asked him about what he had heard and what was going on with the Fuller case, and they asked him if he would be willing to testify if need be. Kenny said that he would, and that was the end of the conversation. Now again, this is all right about the time that Carrie Max Cook was let go on bail. So the setting at this moment is that one of the most highly publicized cases to ever come out of Smith County had just blown up in David Dobbs' face. He had Ed Eight sitting in the Smith County Jail, and this was another highly publicized case that he was unable to obtain a conviction in the year before. And then out of nowhere, a man who happens to be in the same jail, in the same tank as Ed Eights, tries to snitch on another inmate and tells him that he thinks he could be a great criminal informant and is trying to work a deal. Kenny says that that's the last he ever heard from anyone about the Fuller case. He never did testify in that trial, and Fuller did end up getting convicted in 1998 and was executed by lethal injection on August 24th of 2006. But Dobbs and Murphy weren't done with Kenny. He says that they came back to visit him several more times without his attorney present, and Dennis Murphy confirms this. In his testimony, he says that he visited Kenny in prison four times. The first time was for the Fuller matter, and the rest of the times were about the AIDS case. Now, this is very odd that Dennis Murphy, the FBI agent, is meeting with Kenny Snow about the AIDS case on at least three separate occasions because there is no federal nexus to Ed's case. Murphy had nothing to do with it. And to be honest, the whole thing stinks to me. This is hinky at its max. I mean, first of all, you have a prosecutor and an FBI agent meeting with Kenny Snow without his attorney present. Murphy had no connection to the case whatsoever. 
The only connection that I've been able to find at all is the fact that he's close personal friends with Jack Skeen, who is mentoring his son Joe, who later became an assistant district attorney for Smith County. Then you add in the fact that Kenny Snow had already been sitting in the jail for eight or nine months and was to continue to sit in the jail for more than another year when his supposed accomplice's case had already been disposed of. But Kenny says that on that second visit, when he was expecting Dobbs and Murphy to return to talk about Fuller's case, they told him that they needed his help to get a conviction against Edward Eights. Kenny says in this conversation in 2005 that they told him that if he could help get the conviction against Eights, that they would give him probation. And Kenny says that he even asked them, how can you give me probation when I was sentenced to the pen for 10 years for forging a couple of bad checks and I'm on parole and an habitual offender facing 25 to 99 years? He says that Dobbs told him that he didn't have to worry about it. They could get him probation if he could get him their conviction against AIDS. He says at this point, they didn't tell him how. They just told him to find a way. Kenny says that he got to be friends with Ed. They would play chess and dominoes together. They would talk all the time. But Ed never said anything incriminating to him. But he did say about two weeks after that, that they were up on the roof playing chess when a guy approached Ed. Now, this guy, I'm sure you all realize, is Francis Johnson. Kenny says that he overheard Francis talking to Ed, asking him what was going on with his case, and telling him that he had been at Elnora's house the night that she was murdered. Kenny says that he heard him tell Ed that they had had a fight, they had had sex, but that he didn't kill her, but that he was there. After the conversation was over and they went back to their tank, Ed asked Kenny if he would be willing to testify to what he had just heard Francis Johnson say. Kenny said that he would. Ed called his attorney and told him about the incident. His attorney told him to write down exactly what was said and that he would be in the next week to get it from him. But Ed ended up making bond just a couple of days later. He was able to go home while Kenny was still sitting in the jail. Now, the note that Ed wrote laying out everything Francis had told him is still a mystery to all of us. Ed assumed that Kenny took the note. Kenny doesn't seem to know anything about the note but somehow it disappeared. After Ed got home, his attorneys sent the investigators that were working on Ed's case to talk to Kenny. They took a statement from him where he relayed exactly what Francis Johnson had told Ed. At this point, Ed's trial was actually slated to start that month, but Ed's lawyers filed for a continuance based on this new information so they could chase down some leads. You see, one of the things that Ed had told his attorneys was that Francis Johnson had a scar on his neck and that Francis had told him that he got that scar during the fight with Elnora, that she had taken a knife out and cut him. So Ed's attorneys wanted to check and see if there was any medical records that could prove that he was treated for a cut around the time of the murder. And this is where things start to get really crazy. So in Kenny's recollection in 2005, he says that he was scheduled to appear before the judge at the continuance hearing to tell the judge what he had overheard. But he said two days before the hearing, David Dobbs came to the prison to visit him again, again without his attorney present. Kenny says that the first words out of Dobbs' mouth were, quote, If you testify for eights, we can't do anything for you. He also said that Dobbs told him that the only way you're ever going to box again is if you help us convict eights. You give us eights, and I'll give you probation. At this point, Kenny says that he wrote a letter to his attorney telling him about the deal. This is the same letter that was later presented at trial by Ed's attorneys to try to impeach Kenny, but the judge wouldn't allow it because of attorney-client privilege, 
and the letter was sealed, and no one ever got to see it or hear it. But the more important part here is, Kenny says that David Dobbs told him a couple days before the hearing that you cannot go in front of Judge Gomert and say that you overheard this conversation. Kenny says that David Dobbs gave him a script to memorize for the hearing. He says that Dobbs told him to say, On the advice of my attorney, we had talked, but we haven't had the opportunity to discuss my testimony, and at that time, I will testify. Now keep in mind that at this point, Kenny has had little to no contact with his attorney. He has freely talked to Dobbs and Murphy, Ed's attorneys and their investigator, but he says that he was told to do this before this continuance hearing. And I'll tell you about what happened at that hearing right after the break. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. A few days after Kenny says that he had this conversation with David Dobbs, he was brought into court to appear before Judge Gomert in Ed's hearing for continuance of the trial. Ed's attorneys start explaining to the judge that they need more time before the trial because they have to check out this lead. Dobbs doesn't object to the continuance. In fact, he says he's in support of it. And then Ed's attorneys start explaining to the judge what had happened. Now keep in mind, Kenny Snow is sitting in the courthouse, and Ed's attorneys are expecting Kenny to tell the judge what he had overheard. So they explain to the judge what had happened and tell them that they need to track down these records. But then things take a turn. Dobbs tells Judge Gomert that he doesn't think Snow's testimony is going to be legitimate. And then he tells Gomert that he needs to have a private meeting with him in his chambers, off the record. Gomert finds this really strange that he wants to meet off the record and not have the meeting recorded. And even asks Ed's attorneys, don't you have an objection to this? And Ed's attorneys, which is a move that I can't fathom why they did it, told Gomert that they had no objection. Gomert even says, this is highly unusual. You're sure you don't have an objection? And they say, no, it's fine. And what happened next is one of the most frustrating parts about this case. You see, getting the records from Georgia was going to take time. It was going to be a process. Ed's attorney, Cliff Roberson, testified that at one point he had wrote a letter to Dobbs asking for their help in obtaining these records. And he told the judge that Dobbs' response in his letter basically said, quote, forget you. Dobbs even later in the transcript refers to it as the forget you letter. But now Dobbs is saying that he's fine with obtaining these records. But as they're going back and forth talking about how complicated it's going to be to get records from a different state, Gomert asked the magic question. He asked if there was anything from the scene that could be tested forensically against Francis Johnson. Now keep in mind, he's the judge. He would be the one to sign the warrant or the court order allowing this testing to happen. 
But in any case, he asks if there's anything that could be tested, and Ed's attorney McLean suggests that they could test the fingerprints and the hair samples. And Dobbs tells Gomert, again, the judge who would actually sign the warrant, that they don't have enough probable cause at this point to get a warrant to get hair samples from Johnson. And this is the worst part. We were so close. Gomert says in the transcripts that we can test the fingerprints now. He says there's no reason we can't test the fingerprints without any delay. Which was true. They had Francis Johnson's fingerprints. He had just been arrested. It would have taken nothing to compare the fingerprints from the scene. And remember, there was at least six of those fingerprints that were tested against Elnora, Ed, and Mosley and didn't match either one of them. And here we have the judge in the case saying that we should test the fingerprints. And then Dobbs again asked for a private meeting, and then Gomert addresses Kenny directly. And he asks him if he had indeed heard this conversation. Now Ed and Ed's attorneys are expecting him to say yes, he overheard it. But Snow surprised them all when he said, and this is quote right out of the transcript, On advice of my attorney, we had talked, but we hadn't had time to discuss the opportunity to discuss my testimony, and at that time I will testify. Now, I've talked to Kenny's attorney, and he told me that he knew nothing about this hearing, didn't know it was happening, and didn't know that it did happen. And somehow, in this brief exchange, the plan to test the fingerprints just gets dropped, lost. It's not brought up again. The last thing from the transcript about the fingerprints was Gomert saying that we should be able to test them without delay. But now Gomert's moving on to scheduling the next hearing, asking how long they're going to need to obtain the records from Georgia. And then here comes the old Dobbs switcheroo. Remember that Ed's attorneys originally asked Dobbs for his help in obtaining the records from Georgia, and Dobbs told them, forget you. But now Dobbs says that his office will take responsibility for getting the records. Judge Gomert asks who's going to obtain the records, and Dobbs insists that he will do it himself. A new pretrial hearing date is set, and that's the end of the hearing. When both sides returned for the next pretrial hearing, the records from Georgia had been found. Well, kind of. Dobbs testifies that they didn't have to jump through the hoops to get the records from Georgia because he just went to Francis Johnson's house and got the records directly from him. His records indicate that at some point he had had neck surgery, and that's what the scar on his neck was from. Now, maybe that's legitimate. Maybe that is where the scar on his neck came from. Maybe Ed was just assuming that the scar on his neck came from the knife because Francis had told him that Elnora had pulled a knife on him. But the fact is that we'll never know, because instead of going to the medical facilities in Georgia to find out exactly everything that Francis Johnson was treated for, Dobbs just went right to Johnson's house and let him handpick which medical records he gave him. Now at this point, Ed's attorneys don't know that Kenny's about to flip the script on Ed. All they know is that the medical records seem to have taken the wind out of their sails. But Ed doesn't find out until much later that Kenny had been plotting against him with Dobbs and Murphy. See, at some point, and I'm not exactly sure of the timing of this based on all this transcripts and testimony, But at some point while Ed was still in jail, Kenny asked him for a couple bucks so that he could get some pictures to help with his case. Ed transferred $8 into Kenny's attorney's name. This was later presented at trial. In Kenny Snow's testimony, is Ed paying Kenny to testify on his behalf? Kenny testified that he had given him that money as a down payment and that he was planning to give him $1,000 later. 
But Kenny says now and has been saying for about 15 years that that wasn't the case at all, that Ed was just trying to be nice and help him out. But a few months before Ed's actual trial began, one of his buddies who was still in the jail called him and told him that Kenny keeps meeting with David Dobbs and that FBI agent and that he shouldn't trust Kenny anymore. You see, Kenny had been calling Ed on a regular basis just to chat, but as it turns out, he was trying to get more information from him, trying to get something more solid for Dobbs. At that point, Ed's attorneys decided they just need to drop the whole Francis Johnson thing completely and not call him as a witness. But Francis Johnson ended up being a witness anyway because the state called him. You remember back in the episode entitled Exhibit 137, Francis basically got on the stand saying that he was in Georgia and he had proof of that during the time of the murder. What no one seemed to know then, but what we know now, is that Exhibit 137 does not prove that Francis Johnson was in Georgia at all. But that was another document that David Dobbs personally went to Francis Johnson's house to obtain and did not present to the defense before trial. So they didn't have time to analyze it or even figure out what exactly it said. At Ed's trial, the state also called Kenny Snow, who got on the stand and testified that Ed had paid him to lie for him. That the whole story with Francis Johnson never happened and that he had made an agreement with Ed to lie on the stand. He also told the judge and the jury that he had not been given any deal for his testimony, that he was just doing it because he thought it was the right thing to do. As you know, Ed was ultimately convicted, and three months later, Kenny Snow was finally sentenced to 10 years of deferred adjudication probation, 22 months after he was first arrested. But this whole process never sat right with Kenny. One of Ed's old attorneys told me that Kenny Snow had reached out to them. This is while he was out in the world as a free man on probation. Kenny called Ed's attorney and told him that he had lied on the stand. He said he wanted to make it right, and he was willing to write an affidavit. The timing of this is important because this wasn't Kenny trying to make a deal for himself. He was already out and free. But he couldn't live with the fact that he had lied on the stand and that Ed, who he says in all of his correspondences, he believes is an innocent man. He says multiple times that he just can't see Ed doing anything like this, and he wanted to make it right. In 2005, Kenny faxed a handwritten affidavit to Clifton Roberson. The affidavit said that he had lied on the stand, that David Dobbs had told him to do it in exchange for a deal, and that he did, in fact, overhear the conversation with Francis Johnson. By this point, Ed had a new attorney. The information was forwarded on to him. They reached out to Kenny, and Kenny typed out the following affidavit. My name is Kenneth Leon Snow. I am serving concurrent 40-year sentences for aggravated robbery in cause number 241-807-2697 and for robbery in cause number 241-804-8797 in the 241st District Court of Smith County. I was incarcerated in the Smith County Jail in 1997 awaiting trial on these charges. I had prior felony convictions for forgery and theft. I was indicted as a habitual offender and was facing a punishment range of 25 to 99 years or life imprisonment if convicted. Another inmate, Justin Fuller, was awaiting trial for capital murder and wrote me a letter asking me to lie on his behalf. I wrote a letter to Matt Bingham, a Smith County District Attorney, informing him that Fuller had asked me to lie and offering to cooperate with the state against Fuller. Several weeks after I contacted the state, I was visited by David Dobbs, another Smith County District Attorney, and Dennis Murphy, an FBI agent. They asked if I was willing to testify against Fuller. I said that I was. Several weeks after that meeting, Edward H. was placed in my tank in the jail. He was charged with murder. 
I had not met him before then. One day when Aids and I were playing chess, another inmate, Leonard Francis Johnson, told Aids that he had been at the complainant's house the night that she was killed. I heard their conversation. Aids asked me afterward if I was willing to tell his lawyers about it. I said that I would. A few days later, I gave Aids' lawyer an audio tape recorded interview in which I said that I heard another inmate tell Aids that he had been at the complainant's house the night she was killed. About two weeks later, Dobbs and Murphy met with me again at the jail. They knew that I had spoken to Aids' lawyers. Dobbs told me that if I testified for Aids, the state would not help me with my cases. They asked me about the conversation that I overheard. I told them about it. Murphy then told me about the Aids case in detail as if he were trying to convince me that Aids was guilty. I had been a professional boxer before my legal problems, and they told me that I would never box again unless I helped them convict Aids. They told me that I would receive probation on my pending charges if I helped them convict Aids, even though I had previously been on felony probation and had twice been to the penitentiary. I notified my lawyer, Brandon Boddy, about the offer and kept him informed about my meetings with Dobbs and Murphy. Aids had not made any incriminating statements to me when I first met with Dobbs and Murphy about his case. After that meeting, I tried to get Aids to discuss his case. Dobbs and Murphy continued to meet with me and told me everything I knew about the case. Despite my efforts, Aids never confessed. Dobbs told me to do whatever was necessary to get a conviction, but that Aids would have to be convicted for me to get probation. I thought of a plan to catch Aids in a compromising situation. Dobbs and Murphy approved it. I told Aids that I needed money to help with the investigation in my case. He arranged to have a small amount of money transferred from his commissary account at the jail to mine. I successfully created a record of him giving me the money so it would appear to a jury that he had paid me to testify for him. I would also testify that he wrote a script of what I should say and that I should blame the murderer on Johnson. The prosecutors met with me before the trial and prepared me to testify. They told me to deny that I had a deal in exchange for my testimony. I testified for the state against Aids in August of 1998. I testified that he had asked me to say that I had heard him talk to Johnson and to memorize the script of the conversation between him and Johnson, that he offered to pay me $1,000, that he told me what Johnson looked like and that Johnson used to date his mother, that he had transferred money to my commissary account, and that I contacted the district attorney's office because it was not right to lie in a case. I testified that neither Murphy nor any prosecutor had promised me anything in exchange for my testimony and that I did not expect my cooperation to be considered in the resolution of my cases. I appeared in court on my pending charges on November of 1998. Dobbs was present, even though he was not prosecuting me. I expected to plead guilty to one charge and have the other one dismissed. However, the state was only willing to offer me probation if I pled guilty to both charges. I reluctantly agreed to plead guilty to both, and the court placed me on 10 years deferred adjudication probation. My probation was adjudicated in both cases in May of 2004, and the court sentenced me to 40 years imprisonment. This affidavit is true and correct. Kenneth Leon Snow, March 2, 2005.
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Ed's attorneys thought that this would be proof positive of a clear-cut Brady violation by the state. They did not disclose the fact that Kenny was given a deal for his testimony. But just to be on the safe side, they also obtained an affidavit from Kenny Snow's attorney. His affidavit reads as follows. My name is Brandon Boddy. I'm a lawyer with an office in Quitman, Texas. I represented Kenneth Snow on charges of aggravated robbery and cause number, gives the cause number, in 1997 and 1998. I am making this affidavit at the request of Josh Schaefer to explain the circumstances surrounding Snow's decision to plead guilty. Snow was incarcerated in the Smith County Jail in 1997 awaiting trial on these charges. He had prior felony convictions for forgery and theft, was indicted as a habitual offender, and faced a punishment range of 25 to 99 years or life imprisonment if convicted. While his charges were pending, he told me that an inmate named Edward Ates, who was awaiting trial for murder, had been placed in his tank in the jail, asked him to testify, and wrote a script regarding how he should testify. I contacted Assistant District Attorney David Dobbs in the hope that this information would benefit Snow. Dobbs wanted to call Snow to testify at Eight's trial. The Smith County District Attorney's Office had a policy of refusing to make written agreements for their testimony with witnesses who had a pending criminal charge. Accordingly, Dobbs and I did not have a written agreement that Snow would receive probation in exchange for his testimony. However, Dobbs clearly communicated to us that he would help Snow on his case if he testified for the state. This was a gentleman's agreement, and I expected Dobbs to keep his word and ensure that Snow received a very good deal. At a minimum, we'd expect the state to consider Snow's cooperation and resolution of his case. The prosecutors in Aid's case, including Dobbs, helped prepare Snow to testify before the trial. Snow testified for the state at Aid's trial in August of 1998. Snow and I appeared in court on his pending charges in November of 1998. Dobbs was present even though he was not prosecuting Snow. The state offered a plea bargain of 10 years deferred adjudication probation. I believe that this was an excellent offer, considered that he was facing 25 to 99 years or life imprisonment, had previously been on felony probation, and had twice been to the penitentiary. The state made this offer because he testified against eights. Otherwise, it would have offered a substantial prison sentence. He accepted the plea bargain on my recommendation. Dobbs told the court about his cooperation in the AIDS trial. The court followed the agreement and placed him on deferred adjudication probation for 10 years. I understand that Snow's guilt was subsequently adjudicated and that received a prison sentence. I did not represent him in the adjudication proceeding and do not have personal knowledge of the circumstances surrounding it. This affidavit is true and correct. Signed, Brandon Body, June 5, 2006. Armed with these two affidavits, Ed's new attorney filed a habeas corpus pleading asking that his conviction be vacated, in part due to this Brady violation. 
In 2010, Ed had his day in court. Kenny Snow was brought from the Styles unit all the way back to Smith County to prepare to testify at this hearing. As he told me, this was finally his opportunity to make things right with Ed. But he never got the chance. Kenny backed out of testifying at the last minute. Ed's team still went ahead with the hearing, but the judge ultimately ruled that he didn't believe Brandon Body or Kenny Snow and didn't feel that the testimony made a difference in Ed's trial, meaning it didn't meet either prong of the Brady violation. Number one, he didn't believe it happened. And number two, even if it did, he didn't believe there was prejudice. Ed's habeas hearing was on September 20th, 2010. After the hearing, on October 14th, Kenny Snow was pissed and wrote a letter to Ed's attorney. Part of his letter reads as follows. I never seen a lawyer until September 20th, and I was taken to the Smith County Jail on September 10th. And the first thing that came out of his mouth was Matt Bingham, the criminal district attorney, told him to tell me if I testify and tell about the deal I was made between me and them, he was going to file perjury charges on me, and that that time wouldn't start until after parole on this 40 I am doing now. And the letter continues on, but the basis of it is that Kenny went to Smith County intending to testify for Ed. The day of the hearing, he was given a court-appointed attorney who told him that Matt Bingham had told him that if he testified about the deal he was given, that they would file perjury charges on him. This was Ed's one and only bite at the apple. In Texas, you get one shot at habeas. Ed took his shot, and he lost. And his case has been dead ever since that ruling came out in 2010. That is, until now. To summarize Kenny Snow's overall involvement in Ed's case is pretty simple, actually. Kenny was arrested for a crime that he didn't commit. He told a district attorney who was reeling from the nasty defeat in Kerry Max Cook's case that he's willing to be a criminal informant on another case. He wasn't needed on that case, but Dobbs saw an opportunity in him. Kenny overheard the conversation with Francis Johnson and intended to help Ed. Dobbs and Murphy told him that if he helped Ed, that they wouldn't help him, but if he would help them convict Ed, that they would give him probation. They stopped Kenny from telling Judge Gomer that he'd overheard the conversation and somehow barely wiggled their way out of having Francis Johnson's fingerprints tested against the fingerprints on the murder scene. Dobbs then, instead of acting like a prosecutor and chasing down this lead to figure out if Francis Johnson was indeed the murderer, he instead went to Francis' house and helped him concoct a plan to make himself look innocent. Kenny did what he was told at the trial and was given his probation. He felt terrible about it, and he's been trying to make it right ever since. I have a job that needs to be done if any of you are interested or have the ability to do so. Jill from Pod Transcriptions used to transcribe the podcast for me, but about a year ago she had some medical issues and we haven't had anybody transcribing since then. I would love to be able to send Ed copies of the transcripts of the podcast so he can at least read what's happening because he doesn't have the ability to listen to it. If any of you out there are interested in creating transcripts for the podcast and have the technology and the ability to do so, please get in touch with me at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. I want to thank, as always, Johnny Rose of Slightly Subversive Music for creating all the music for the show. Don't forget that you can purchase any one song or the entire album at truthandjusticemusic.com or just by going through iTunes. 
I want to thank Tate Krupa for designing and creating our logo. Thank you to today's sponsors, 4Athletics Apparel and Squarespace for funding today's show. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your support in every way that you give it. Keep sending in your thoughts, theories, and ideas to theories at truthandjusticepod.com. Send in new cases to cases at truthandjusticepod.com. Like the Facebook page or follow me on Twitter at truthjusticepod. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.
You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply.